I put long COVID more like a latmus paper, right? So the things that we in the past were never managing well, now it's in everybody's faces. It's suddenly like, oh, we have the pandemic of long COVID. Well, duh, we always had a pandemic of chronic problems that healthcare had no idea what to do with. It's just really highlighting the fact that, you know, we have to have a better process here. Hello, this is Dr. Deva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I am pleased to have Dr. Mikhail Kogan. Dr. Kogan received his medical degree from Drexel University College of Medicine. He completed Social Internal Medicine Resident Program at Montefiore Albert Einstein School of Medicine and Geriatric Fellowship at George Washington University. Currently, he serves as Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine, Associate Professor of Medicine in Division of Geriatrics and Palliative Care, Associate Director of the Geriatrics Fellowship Program and Director of Integrative Medicine Track Program at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Kogan is founder and executive director of AIM Health Institute, a 501c3 nonprofit organization in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area that provides integrative medicine services to low-income and terminally ill patients, regardless of their ability to pay. Today's episode is a special recast of my appearance on his show, and I thought we'd just air it today for you all to experience. I've had some experience for the past, um, I guess, year and a half with this condition. We have an increasing number of patients coming to the clinic. Um, so we kind of decided that I'll tell him how what we do, and um, he'll use it for the book, and uh, we'll record this so people can watch it and hopefully it'll be useful for everybody. So thanks, Diva, so much. And um, I don't know, let's just, just start with wherever. What precipitated you writing the book? And maybe tell us a little bit about the context. Well, as you know, um, I had published a book about three years ago on my experience with cancer, and uh, it was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And what precipitated this particular book uh, and the content specifically is the fact that I had suffered through long COVID. And it was, I would say it was the experience that I have had and ongoing is worse than what I have suffered through cancer. It was pretty debilitating. I contracted COVID about uh, September of last year. Um, I'm not vaccinated, and I, I don't believe that that played a role in the process of me getting long COVID. It was just a percentage game because it's 30% as they vote. I think it's higher of people who contract COVID get long COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, I took the one of the protocols that's out there uh, using ivermectin. I actually did get the monoclonal antibodies. I had high levels of vitamin D prior, but I, I used quercetin, zinc. The issue that I think that might have contributed is that at that time, the recommended dose of ivermectin was much lower than what it is now. Well, back then, it was 0.2 mg per cake. Now it's recommended to be 0.4 to 0.6 mg per cake. And that may have played a role. I have no, there's no evidence. Um, this is just basically, you know, my hypothesis. So to describe my situation with long COVID, after about a month of contracting COVID, I would say I was starting to have major panic attacks, extreme anxiety that just came out of nowhere. And um, I didn't understand why it was happening. A lot of people that I had talked with say it was sort of a spiritual process. Um, it was just something that I was I was going through. And I was also getting at the point very angry and it was... I don't know why, I'm just angry all the time, angry at things. Um, my focus on life was just narrowed it to one thing and I couldn't get out of that specific goal, the concentration. As time actually progressed, the symptoms actually worsened to the point where I was starting to have headaches and severe neck discomfort. In about January of, of this year, three to four months, is when I started to have debilitating just pain um, and lack of concentration. 
I kind of got to a degree where social, socially I was isolated because I had such problems with discomfort, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep, um, lack of being able to focus on a conversation with an individual. And I had literally spent my weeks going to physicians, going to practitioners, whether it was a Western medical practitioner, a alternative med practitioner, uh, acupuncture. I was going to see, uh, I was doing shamanic healing. I was doing everything that I could to figure out what the problem was. I didn't figure it out to get me on the other side of it. No one had a diagnosis. No one, you know, because everything showed that I cleared the COVID. You know, I wasn't, I, I was never having any respiratory issues. Um, all of those symptoms that I had the first week or so was gone. The only thing that really um, remained was the brain. And um, I, I didn't know that that was long COVID because I cleared all the other symptoms. So it didn't even dawn on me. And so months later, I would say April of this year, I happened to have someone refer me to get a QEEG. Their daughter was suffering from a concussion. I said, you know what? Let me get this. I don't know why. I just feel like I should get a QEEG. I got it done. And a week or two later, I got the results. And the guy was asking me, do you suffer from depression? Do you suffer from chronic pain? Do you suffer from heart disease? I said, no, none of this was going on. The pain that I was suffering was from uh, COVID, the headaches and the neck pain. And he says, you know, are you healthy? I'm like, pretty much. He's like, well, this doesn't make sense. And then I said, do you, have you had COVID? And I said, yeah, September of last year. And he said, ah, we're seeing problems with severe inflammation of the brain secondary to COVID. And I'm like, and then there was a ding, 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 ding hit me. I was like, oh. So yeah, and that was the big aha moment for me and everyone that, that it was long COVID that I was suffering from. And this was six months after I contracted COVID that we determined it was long COVID. Do you think the cancer you've had before played a role? I, I think I had some deterioration in my brain, inflammation issues. It was a gradual process, I think. And I had chemo brain, essentially. Yeah. It was 2015 when I had my last round of chemo. And I had noticed over the years that my level of concentration, my level of focus, my memory, my even even my mood was was somewhat difficult it was challenging for me and mm -hmm. i thought it was just situational and no it was just chronic so my thoughts on long covid it's spiritual basis it, it brings out things that's going on and it exacerbate things mm -hmm. and spiritually i feel if you are in a place where you don't have a lot of self-love long covid is common with, the, with that condition as well Hmm. Hmm. So all of this hit home for me in a spiritual way, um, as well as physical and, and uh, medical. I ended up getting a round of stem cells. It's in this new technology that's out. I was just going to ask you about that. So yeah. I'm beginning to see that that's becoming more or less. Well, I would. I don't know. If there's not enough evidence, but there's definitely an increased number of patients who I have seen whether. It doesn't even matter what the cognitive decline is from, but there seems to be a clear benefit. So what was your experience with that? So we'll talk about this later, but I'm going to performing this procedure that I had done on myself. I'm trained in it, and now I'm going to start offering that. So immediately, I, I felt a little bit of difference after the first weekend of my procedure. It was like the lights went on. And I didn't understand if that was the case or what but then I had a repeat QEEG a few weeks later, about a month after my first, and it showed that there was increased power. So across the board, all the frequencies that were measured, there was a doubling of amplitude. And, and I feel that that was secondary to the stem cells. And it makes sense because I felt more awake. I felt more alert. The cognitive issues in terms of like the concentration, depression, and anxiety were still present but I had been working on that. A lot of that was secondary to not having a diagnosis and mm -hmm. a, having a diagnosis and knowing that I wasn't crazy was, was really helpful in the sense that, you know, I knew there was a, there was a rationale and there could be a way to fix this. So um, that coupled with just time, um, I also started um, doing some neurofeedback mm -hmm. uh, and that started to help me a lot. I, I started to treat the brain as a brain injury 
And so I started to throw supplements at it, like high love, high, high doses of fish oil, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. Um, just things to help with, with the brain. I was also doing a lot of craniosacral therapy that was helping tremendously. Just my body was so out of sorts and it had picked up so much, just, just, I want to say like just a heavy load of energy that needed to be unwound. So that's a great stabilizing therapy and very, not just grounding, but also just balancing for the autonomic nervous system, which is always goes haywire. Yeah. And then I started to increase my meditation practice. And then I started to do a lot of deep breathing um, exercises. So that increased my HRV. Mm -hmm. And I have some other tools that are based in energetics. It's, it's a, we'll, we'll call it as a glorified PEMF machine for now, but the science is the same. And I was using that often. And I feel that that helped, you know, get, get me healed on a cellular level. So all of these things have been helping. So it's been a year since COVID. I feel I've gotten through the worst of it. Um, so uh, I still find myself having concentration issues the, and then sleep issues, but that's being resolved. I just came back from another round of stem cells um, last week. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm feeling things are improving. Incidentally, I just wanted to bring this to your attention. I don't know if you have people that are complaining, but I have visual issues since my, since COVID. Yeah, that's, I don't think that's very common, actually. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Like yeah. my, that increase in floaters in my eyes. Uh-huh. Um, and then I've had a, a really rapid decline in, in vision where I have a really bad astigmatism. Uh-huh. I have other underlying problems, pathology with the eyes, but it seemed like all of it just got exacerbated. And it doesn't surprise me because yeah, I mean, it's a brain. All of this is a brain, right? It's so exactly. Right. Exactly. right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many underlying drivers there, and some of them are direct toxicity, some of them are vascular, you know, you're, you're, you become partially hypoxic, and you know, all these things in combination. And, and um, I think what I want to comment immediately is, I think most of what we're seeing, and it, it, this is just prelude, because sort of from my end, um, I joined the GW had a long COVID program. The actual university had a long COVID program for about a year and a half. So they started it pretty early and I was one of their docs from the beginning. So that was just a standard clinic. They had a research going, they were doing kind of a comprehensive intake labs that included standard inflammatory markers, just, you know, just a reasonably comprehensive testing through the research uh, protocol. Um, and I think about year in, it became pretty obvious that the program was just not sustainable and they ran out of the funds and that was it. So they actually closed the formal program. The people who are running it, just seeing some long COVID patients on their own in their clinics. But we basically took that whole long COVID clinic, anybody who could afford out-pocket expenses and or had a good insurance so they can reimburse. And then they went to the to CIM, to GWCIM. So now we are seeing ever-increasing influx of those patients and, and just sort of not just basically over what they were doing at the standard of care. They would diagnose, um, they'll help with the disability paperwork, and then they would refer out, like they would refer out to PT, to the cognitive therapy, to specialties. Like you say, somebody like you would probably end up with neurology and maybe cardiology if there's an enough autonomic instability symptoms. You know, but those methods are kind of a far cry from what we do. Uh, but it taught me a process and kind of oversee maybe in the beginning, I probably had a few dozen of patients. The clinic saw over a thousand pretty quickly, and the backlog was a few more thousand patients. So it was a pretty wow. sizable clinic. But, uh, you know, we now probably have a few hundred patients at CIM who we following ongoingly. And, you know, a lot of them describe situation like yours. I'd, I'd say probably you're somewhere in the mid-pack in terms of severity, because there's a lot of people who you, thank God, didn't have a lot of actual uh, functional disability. Like, you know, uh, we have a lot of patients. So we have one patient, completely healthy, 30-year-old, some just can't even walk a block. Like, it, it, you know, it's that severe. Um, and I think one really critical nominator, um, and I think somebody should talk about this, because I, I read regularly 
some of the experts uh, on the topic, and I don't see this a lot. It's just the beginning of this being kind of pointed out. I think almost every patient we see has something underneath, like history of cancer, uh, history of mold toxicity that was totally missed, like just, just nobody ever thought of that. Um, they had some fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome from EBV before. Yeah, like the list of the underneath drivers is probably as long as you can make it. And those are the patients who I think really are, they're just not recovering. And I think that's basically, so in that context, I put long COVID more like a latmus paper, right? So the things that we in the past were never managing well, now it's in everybody's faces. It's suddenly like, oh, we have the pandemic of long COVID. Well, duh, we always had a pandemic of chronic problems that healthcare had no idea what to do with. It's just really highlighting the fact that, you know, we have to have a better process here. Um, so I just wanted to open with that from my end because it's very live in me because I often see so much mismanagement. Like we had one patient, we still have her, we help her now. She comes from, I'm not going to give details because it's going to get too obvious, but she's from uh, kind of a rural, like far out Virginia, which is not close to any large university center, but it's close to a pretty sizable healthcare facility. She had 75 ER visits. Wow. When we saw her, she had an advanced progressive diabetes that was missed. She had a pericardial effusion that was missed. She had a, a pretty obvious uh, irregular heartbeat that everything was missed. And they kept sending her to psychiatry. Like, you know, and it's not like a, some random rural area with a small clinic. It's a large hospital with a thousand beds and no one took care of this woman. Like no one bothered to say, look, uh, what if she's not like making stuff up? Right. What if all of this is real? And. I mean, you know, it's a highlight of inefficiency, but it's also a highlight of the fact that even if, if if the facility like this, they couldn't figure this out. Think of the rest of the America, right? right? Like it, we have a massive problem going on and nobody wants to talk about it. It's like you, your story, I hope will get out there and be everywhere because the reality is this can be managed. Right. I mean, with the right tools and it should be managed, but more importantly, we know what to do. And I think the rest of an hour, we should probably talk about sort of how we're doing it, what we're doing it. And, and, and that's really the, 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 the crux of it. So I think anybody who's listening and have friends or relatives or anybody who, you know, struggling here, I think the critical first step is find a provider who actually knows what they're doing. Don't keep relying on failed system because I, my favorite expression is uh, you're going to a butcher, you're not going to buy a salad. And, and that's sort of like, that's how a healthcare system operates. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily because it's geared toward particular outcomes. It's geared toward particular set of issues. This is a new issue. You know, this medicine is very um, conservative and it shifts very slowly. It, it, it has to follow evidence. Accumulation of evidence takes time. Often what one person call evidence, the other person will not call evidence. So there's also discrepancy as to what are we going to call evidence. And so, you know, finding a person who's going to say, look, I don't care what the evidence is, I'm going to help you is really the, the, the critical aspect. Because without that, um, this is not a set of problems that's somehow magically going to go away. I, I think there's a lot of, there was a lot of hope in the beginning that Oh, all these patients in one year are going to get better. Like even some of our senior faculty was saying, oh, you just hang in there and you'll get better. No, you won't get better. If you don't try to improve your cellular health, as you said, if you don't work on some of the techniques that help you to revamp the mitochondria and clear up toxicities and decrease inflammatory response, you're not going to get better. You're going to circle the same drain over and over again probably getting worse. Actually, that's what we're seeing frequently, that people who have not been helped, they seem to progressing. And they tend to progress, in my opinion, into three directions. So one is inflammatory. So they start getting more and more inflammation. It's like a vicious cycle. Second is metabolic, a lot of progression to diabetes. I don't fully understand why, 
Hmm. And I don't know what percentage, I, I haven't read the literature to know exact numbers, but significant proportion of patients, if they do nothing, they eventually end up with a roaring diabetes. Wow. Um, and, and the third is kind of, um, it's just, they get, their mitochondrial health is so suffering, they get so fatigued that they kind of gradually start becoming less and less active, both cognitive, but also physical. And that sort of use it or lose it model, just a downward spiral there too. So those are the three big things I think we jump on instantly, you know, optimize metabolism, drop inflammatory response in parallel with oxidative stress management, and then start working on a cellular health with whatever, like however, whatever fits the patient. So, so all right. Um, yeah, so back to you. I, I know you have a lot of questions. Yeah, I mean, so no, I mean, this is great. So um, I, for me, it's, I haven't had an opportunity to see patients, so I don't know the sequela of the disease, which mm -hmm. is why I really want to speak with you and have you on board because of you are in a university setting, you have a clinic dedicated to this. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing an array of cases from symptom symptomatology from one extreme to the other extreme. So I'd like to be able to start first by maybe having you describe the sequelae of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Granted, it is going to be a little bit difficult because stuff that you're seeing has been around for some time for each individual patient. But like you mentioned, a lot of people are having rip-roaring diabetes. A lot of people are having issues with um, mitochondrial cellular health. And mm -hmm. people are having more issues with their, you know, are becoming more um, uh, metabolically unstable. So let's start by describing some of the things that are commonplace with the patients mm -hmm. that, seeing that are coming to you with long COVID. Yeah. So I think, I think again, let's group them in a, in a system-based approach. I think it's just more logical to do it that way. Uh, otherwise, the list is going to be just jolted. Absolutely. So, yeah. So the inflammatory conditions, an interesting, um, I think by the time patients show up to see us, they have a sequelae of inflammation. They may actually not have an obvious like CRP is high or something like that. It actually ends up being more of a time that they're have a undercurrent inflammatory response that's more in line with the SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. So you measure CRP and it's normal, but then you measure things like TGF beta or uh, C4A, like a, like a complement, alternative complement pathways, and they're all like through the roof. So those are the ones that have kind of a, they had some biotoxin underneath, or they had something under there that was cooking, that was missed for a while. And then the COVID brought this up. So now they're a lot worse, but everybody's saying, oh, yeah, but your CRP is fine. Your SED rate is fine. Like, what do you want from me? Well, yeah. Which, so that's mark, which markers again? So I don't know these markers. So yeah. So this is the standard mold, chronic mold workup. So the, what we call SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, due to some of the biotoxins, whether it's a mold, Lyme, any Lyme co-infections, um, any kind of other biotoxin from house, you know, it doesn't have to be mold, right? And I mean, actin actinomycosis is a big deal, although some people consider that a mold, although it's not really a mold. So there's just a lot of biotoxins out there that people often have from wherever, whether it's their house, I mean, tick by tick-borne diseases, all kinds of things underneath. And, you know, and often they get better. So like they would be treated for Lyme. Like I've had at least half a dozen patients like this. They know they had Lyme. They know they got better. Everything resolved. Uh, well, I question that, by the way. Like, well, most things resolved. And then the, they hit the COVID. And then a couple of months later, like, just, just like they're like, this is how I felt three years ago when somebody treated me for Lyme, except now it's much worse. And, and so that's the first kind of big group. Inflammation, non-resolving inflammatory response, and just kind of a chronic... They all get, well, not all, but most of them also get some muscle activation syndrome, which means they also have this kind of a acute, um, uh, yes, yeah, like, like an acute uh, allergy-like syndrome where yep. even a minor, yep. minor trigger causes rashes, hives, all kinds of yep. things. And, and with that, often they get like everything gets way exacerbated until the acute things passes. So, so that's, that's there. And, and, you know, muscle activation, I think probably component of SIRS, there's a lot of argument whether what's the chicken and an egg here. 
it's a little a little over my pay grade. I, I don't actually we have a our own mold expert in the practice, so I take care of some of those patients, but often we end up co-managing them. Um, so that's one gr- group, and within that group, I think the symptoms that are most common are um, kind of all over the map. I mean, they have a lot of GI problems generally because the GI tract seems to be going off kilt almost immediately, and then microbiome doesn't bounce back and everything is sort of, you know, but then microbiome is secondary in that situation, not primary. So if you just address microbiome without addressing the toxicity, nothing's happening. Um, one, they, a lot of them have cognitive symptoms as a primary cause from the inflammatory response because it, it affects the brain. Um, actually, some of this toxins easily crossing into the brain. There's good data on that. Um, they, a lot of them, of course, get fatigue. I mean, fatigue is universal. Um, and that's, you know, the fatigue is universal and inflammatory response because your, your system is bugged down trying to take the toxin out and you don't have a lot, basically cellular function left to manage things. And so hormones go down, adrenals often suffer and, and people often say, oh, you know, you manage adrenals, but the adre- adrenals are secondary. A lot of things become secondary here, which, uh, in terms of process of management, you have to actually know what you're doing. Otherwise, you will be managing issues that are on a surface. They're not necessarily the causality. They're still their result of that cause. A lot of this times, patients start getting different aches and pains. I think it's similar to fatigue. It's like you basically cellular function goes, and anytime you're trying to have muscles do something, they're screaming in agony saying, look, we got no energy to handle getting up the stairs two flights of stairs. I mean, it, 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 it's like at a basic, at the basic level, even the common activity. And, and, and of course, a lot of people are used to a certain level of functionality. Now it's gone. They thinking that they can just start exercising back. Um, and, and that seems to make things way worse. That, that was actually a typical early treatment that seemingly was one of the few things that was universally effective as a very careful, gradual exercise buildup uh, with a PT or just a good um, personal trainer helping patients. So that was, and it still is one of the kind of a mainstream treatments, even in the standard of care. The second big component is for sure um, is, is kind of, a, I guess I would, I would describe it as um, chronic vascular component. And that seems to cause a particular slew of symptoms different pains. So that depends on where that microvascular hits. A lot of headaches and neck pain, as you described, a ton. And that's probably top five symptoms is is a a, a different pain syndrome evolving area of the head and neck. Uh, But joints anywhere, you know, even even legs when you're walking. Some some symptoms are very typical, like like almost, I would say, you know, when the, when the blood supply drops to a particular muscle, then that muscle is going to be in pain. Uh, quite a big component. It was pretty clear from the beginning that the microvascular component is a huge role. Early on, there was a lot of anticoagulants used, not just aspirin, but even Lovenox and so heparins and things like that. I don't think I use a lot of anticoagulants now, maybe with the exception of high-dose fish oil, like you said, and, and then I do like natokinase a lot. So those are the two things I use. And for some patients, you know, when things get medical, like they come in with my, you scan their brain since we do this all the time and there's a bunch of micro strokes. Well, okay, well, those patients end up on something much more medical like Eliquis. Um, But that's not actually a common thing, God. Um, Most of it is is subclinical. So like you do the tests and you don't see anything. You may see some, you know, more, more or less unclear things, but they're not necessarily, okay, well, this requires medical management immediately. Like that's actually a minority of cases, not majority. So vascular is big. Mitochondrial health in, in the standard of practice, that's hard to measure. Unless patients come to see me and I run something like NutriVal or some other test that, that I can look at the Krebs cycle and that is almost always affected. Like that's heavily affected. And those, those are the patients who come in with primarily fatigue. So their predominant symptom is fatigue and not just physical, cognitive. Like remember you would describe that brain fog. 
So that is probably number one symptom in the frequency, I would say. Uh, now, it, it never comes as a separate, as a standalone. There's always a bunch of other stuff, but that often is predominant. When it's predominant, usually I, I just kind of immediately throw a lot of things at the patients. You know, I try to give them, um, you know, higher nutritional support. I try to give them anything that revs up mitochondria, like you know, nicotinamide riboside. Uh, I may give them like intravenous infusions, for example. We definitely would do acupuncture in this setting instantly. Uh, we'll try to convince them to, to come up with some kind of a graded exercise regime that's not necessarily for muscles. You know, exercise boosts mitochondria quite significantly. And then you can do like heroics. You can do cold training. You can start doing, you know, if they're toxic um, and you figure that out, like let's say mercury underneath of all that, you have to get rid of that because all of that is bugs down mitochondria, Krebs cycle suffers, and then they have all this symptoms. And then dysautonomia. And dysautonomia, I'm not sure if there is an underlying particular cause, like, um, microvascular it's probably all of the things i just mentioned they're partially leading to dysautonomia dysautonomia is often the hardest to treat i think the part of it is because it's very unpredictable like we have some patients who come and that's all they have like i have one young man that's all he had like he um had this weird thing where he would have rapid heartbeat when he moved got, got up and then he would have He'd have some headaches and then he would have this bulging veins and there would bulge every time he starts to do anything. And they're like, you know, so on the scheme of things, he's relatively mild because he's functional. He does everything. But like, it's pretty obvious that these problems are very concerning for him and, and they were not there before. So that's a kind of a classic primary dysautonomia complex. But in more severe cases, patients would just you know, they have shortness of breath when they try to walk, they move a little bit, then their heart rate is in 150s, and they get put on beta blockers. And 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 the, the thing is, though, some of the basic treatments are helpful, like the beta blockers and, you know, all the, or all the typical graded excesses. But, but often that dragged for a long time, and it wasn't getting better. There are some heroics, like different... Like, for example, there's this treatment where I think they activate, I don't even know exactly, but they do some kind of a nerve block mm. in a, and, and like a part of the vagal nerve block gets blocked. And that worked for some patients like magic. I seen acupuncture for this patients work amazing. Like just like they do eight to 10 sessions and they're like 80% better. Wow. Um, well, because, you know, like think of it, what acupuncture does, right? It's a, it's a energy redistribution. Since pandemic hit, I stopped doing cranial myself and I hadn't, hadn't come back to it. And I've referred a few patients out and a few patients had a good result. So I think the cranial for dysautonomy is a great tool. Like I know you did it and, um, you know, but again, some of this takes time and, and it's sometimes hard to convince the patients to go for it because they're going to be out. It's none of these things are cheap. Yeah. yeah. So they're going to be spending money and, you know, it's easier to pop a pill uh, I think the biggest problem is it's still, I would say dysautonomy is the least understood out of everything I just described, because there's just a lot of, um, there's just not a lot of data on this. And more importantly, the treatments that a standard of care offers are extremely limited and patients often, um, like, let me give you an example. So the patients who have endless Danler syndrome, They're, they present with dysautonomia, sometimes it's called POTS, postural orthostatic hypertension, uh, probably in about 50% of cases. And so those are the patients who got hit with the COVID on top. They are the ones that in my practice, the, the most difficult cases to manage because they already had it underneath. They'll never get fully rid of it because that's just their genetic makeup. And now COVID comes on top and we're trying to do something for them and they've been barely hanging on before, and now they're overboard, and you're applying all the same methods, like, okay, we'll give them tons of electrolytes, we'll do some neurofeedback or biofeedback, like the heart math, for example, that's low cost or something like that. And they get a little bit better, but it's not enough for them to get back to where they were. And so that seems to be a little tricky. I think big component there I'm starting to notice is cannabinoids. So I start using increasing amount of uh, different cannabinoids. I, I, I don't know if I 
can give everybody like clarity as to sort of, okay, you have to use this amount of CBD and this amount of CBG and this much THC. I think that's TBD, but um, pun intended. <laughs> there is no TBD cannabinoid. But, uh, but there's definitely a role to play. I think that it makes sense because dysautonomies often uh, triggers cannabinoid tone um, shifts. And we know that the low doses of THC, for example, for um, general dysautonomia seems to have some significant benefits. But it's in the real life, it's a lot of trial and error. But some patients get a lot better. And I'd say that if, you, if they're coming in and they have a sleep disturbance and we can give them a touch of THC and sleep gets better, that goes a long way, long way. And dysautonomia patients present almost universally with bad sleep. I'm not sure exactly why. I, I, you know, some of these aspects I haven't researched in depth from, you know, uh, basic basic pathophysiologist standpoint, but that seems to be universal. Um, so yeah, I think I think I probably covered most of the stuff. Yeah, most of the yeah the symptomatology. Okay, so um, we're running low on time. So in the span of like the next 15, 20 minutes, what are your treatment algorithms? I know it's specific to the individual based right. on system dysfunction. But what is your first target when you're sitting there with a very complex patient? What are you addressing first? Yeah, actually, believe it or not, before we drop into, okay, so this is the process, I try to get them to, to understand that they're going to be with us for a while. And I think with that in mind, and the fact that most of the patients, it'll take a while to figure out the actual best process, even like I may know all the pieces they need. But how do you prioritize it and where you start and how you continue? Right. That's seemingly uh, an art, like an art that's really that even I'm still feeling like I'm just figuring this out still. But that's why we started group process, because I feel like at the very minimum, if they can't get from point A to point B very quickly, at least I know they're in the process. At least I know we're going to try different things in a in a no particular order until we say, okay, well, that worked. Okay, so that helps because now we know that if if your meditative practices and uh, biofeedback helped, okay, dysautonomy is probably a big component. So let's continue concentrating on that and then figure out other pieces. So group seems to be, we just started one. It's going really well. At the very minimum, it's critical because patients finally have somebody else to connect and on a very deep level. They're listening to other people's stories. They're learning in parallel. They develop body system. They can call each other and say, hey, you know, I'm feeling this and that. And, and at the minimum, just li being listened to is huge. Yeah. Because a lot of these patients like this. That's woman, to me. I had no one to connect with. All the doctors that I saw, practitioners thought I was crazy. And I felt like I was going crazy. Yeah. And so just the fact that we're acknowledging that and the fact that we say, well, we may not be able to help you overnight, but we will help you. And, and you're not crazy. And look, there are tons of people like you. So that'll... And then I would say, and but I try to very quickly figure out which pathway we go. And so the typically the starting point of management will, okay, if I'm worried that they are mitochondrially depleted, I'm going to run a bunch of tests because I want to know, is there a nutritional driver underneath? Like we're seeing a lot of methylation defects, you know, and, and just some basic treatments could be very useful, but I want to know this from the beginning because that also helps me to understand other things. I tend to look into toxins at the same time, just easier that way. Like that initial intake process, you screen for a couple of things and, and at least you either rule them in or rule them out. So then, because if they're toxic, I feel like you can't go anywhere until you at least trying to offload some of the toxicity. Um, a lot of metals, but metal, there's a lot of metals to begin with, mercury, lead. And so that is just a common. Uh, and then we often screen for SIRS off the, like immediately. And that's because I, I don't know if I can put exact percentage on it, but very high percent of people that have biotoxin underneath. I mean, I probably would say between the, the chronic uh, fiber-like syndrome and SIRS-like syndrome, 
at least half of everybody, maybe 75% of people. Um, and then I think the, the rest of them had something like what you described, like you, they had a, some kind of a distant cancer treatment or something in the past that just, you know, causes this low grade process underneath that COVID exacerbates. So if we figure out there is a SERS or, or if there is a, you know, mono or all the, then we just start treatment like as if we would start treatment for those conditions immediately. And, you know, we know how to manage. So, you know, if it's a, if it's a mold biotoxin, you know, we'll just employ Shoemaker like protocol. We don't do all the parts of Shoemaker. We do many. The VIP spray seems to be very effective as a last, just like the stem cells. I'm just starting to learn, but I think the VIP spray for patients. What is the VIP spray? I'm not familiar with that. It's a vasointestinal peptide spray. So, so that's like when you um, need to start finally rebuilding lost neurons, that spray seems to be an essential, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a peptide, just yeah. like we're using now all kinds of peptides in, in different settings, like the peptides for the gut. And the, so this is one of the older peptides. It's been in use for a very long time. Um, it's a, there are a couple of compounders that make it, uh, and it's a nasal spray. So you deploy that, um, and, and that seems to be often like that last piece. Then finally, patient, we clear them up, and then we give them stuff, like we give them nutrients, as you said, to rebuild the neurons. And then you give them hormonal stimulant to do that. You know. And then if you can't afford the stem cells, I think that would be sort of like the, the final, okay, like now you're going to go back to normal. Um, you know, but imagine how much time all this takes, right? Yeah. So you have to like, you can't put VIP and all the really aggressive a regenerative support until the toxins are out until mitochondria works better because otherwise it's just it, it's wasted because all of these things are out of pocket more importantly they take a lot of time and effort and so like you can't you have to be systematically very precise because if like let me give you an example if i try to do neuroregenerative treatment and they're still in a toxic environment like the the house is bad that's the worst i can do for them because they're going to be spending a lot of money, not getting better, getting more and more upset. And, and I failed to tell them, look, you really have to get out of this house or, or you really have to fix the house. That is a big problem. We struggle a lot because often patients just don't get it. They, they can't register that the house is the problem. We have some patients who understand that and did amazing, but that's a difficult conversation always. It's really... I mean, it seems like you're looking for underlying pre-morbid conditions. I mean, I wouldn't even say pre-morbid. Pre, yeah, pre-conditions. You know, yeah. where we're talking about where their liver is decompromised, secondary to all this toxicity, whether it's lead, mold, or heavy metal, or heavy metals. So that's the first thing that's primarily looked at. And as an integrated physician, this is in your wheelhouse because you're doing this on a regular basis. Exactly. Right. So the secondary issues is the dysautonomia, the brain fatigue, the other the overwhelming the, uh, systemic fatigue that are people that are having. Mm -hmm. so for me, what I uh, um, anecdotally figured out is that, you know, the cancer stuff was there. And in my intuition, I felt the cancer resurfaced. And mm -hmm. uh, I had an immediate drop in my blood count, my blood cell count uh, a month after. Like I was hovering around 3.7 to 4.0. It went down to 2.9 a month later. Yeah. And wow. I was like, this was scary to me because I felt that this was a sign that my cancer was coming back. And mm -hmm. my primary is like, no, this is probably post-spiral and it yeah. will go away. Me, I was like, I'm going to hit the psychedelics hard. And I hit the psychedelics really hard. Mm -hmm. and later, my white blood cell count went back to 4.7. So I purged stuff out that needed to be purged energetically. Mm -hmm. It did not fix the um COVID, but I think it got rid of the cancer from an energetic perspective. Yeah, that's that's awesome. We tend to, I mean, we do we just started psychedelics, so kind of learning this as we go. Plus, you know, it's still a little tricky to kind of advocate on a broad scale, but we definitely do a lot of homeopathy and Ayurveda. So that seems to be, you know, if you start looking at this from a constitutional perspective, I think you have a lot of different tools that can work. Um, I completely agree. And sometimes actually you have to start with this. I think often if the spiritual and energetic component is, is not predominant, but blocks the progression, if you don't clear it, 
we, we often find out this in retrospect, like you try to do certain things, nobody's getting better. And then you're like, okay, you know what? I think the terrain is so blocked that if we don't clear the blocks that are energetically in there, nothing's going to happen. Which is why you probably do acupuncture to just to, just to uh, allow the energetic flow. I often don't even tell patients this. I would say, look, we're going to give you acupuncture because your pain is going to get better. But underneath, I'm sitting and thinking, forget your pain. I don't care about your block and she. Yeah, exactly. So two of the things that I, 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 for me, started to really improve. The first thing that really was before the stem cells, that was a game changer, was a was ketamine. I didn't even think about it, but I did mm-hmm. ketamine on my own because I was desperate. That was the one that actually moved the needle for me from a cognitive perspective. And I feel it works. I mean, it's a neuro anti-inflammatory. I believe it started to reduce the inflammation. Also, it helped my mood. And it also actually flushed some neurotoxins, I believe. I don't have any proof of this, but I think that's what started to be a a a mover of the needle. Additionally... I mean, it's going to boost, um, you know, it's a decoupler, right? So it, it, it separate, it, it removes the typical thought process and a, and a typical meta, meta, right. metabolic process in the brain. And you kind of revamp everything quickly. So it's like a booster of, so because I think your, your cognitive issues were so predominant, I think that's why you found it so effective. hundred percent. And then I started to couple that with um, photobiomodulation, mm-hmm. sauna. I was doing- I'll use infrared. Infrared sauna. And, and I was in there three to four times a week. And mm-hmm. I really feel over time that I got rid of any other toxicity that was in my system. You know, whether you, I had you know, underlying stuff going on, which was undiagnosed, but it helped things flush out. And I really feel that that was contributory to my overall systemic health and brain health. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. I think I think we often underestimate certain tools that we have in our disposal. I think the the, the infrared sauna or, or sweating period, I think, is a hugely underappreciated tool. I mean, after all, skin is the largest organ that we don't utilize for clinical treatment methods as much as we should. And so, yeah, and an infrared seems to be, in my mind, a bit more effective than a regular sauna, although I would say that patients who can't afford infrared... Yeah, sauna. If you have it at your gym, if you have it at your friends, if you have, just use it. I mean, the only trick is, I think the patient has to have enough resources to start. Like, I I have to be careful with if somebody is older and more frail. I think you have to be very careful there. Uh, That's I actually when when somebody is more older and frail, I think that's when homeopathy and Ayurvedic, like very gentle methods, seem to be the first line. Somebody who's much younger and stronger, I think what you did is really should be the goal, like aggressive detox, aggressive attempt at rescuing mitochondria at every level of the body, not just brain, but body too. Um, So, yeah. And then I'd love to go into more depths of what you prescribe for homeopathy as well as Ayurvedic. Yeah, that's so we, well, and also I can say this is just not my cup of tea. I I mean, that's why I, I feel like, you have to have a team. Uh, that's why we do, which is fortunate, which is why the integrative medicine model works for this. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I kind of, the way I always think of these things is um, if particular team member has an expertise in something, that's what needs to be tapped in aggressively. And, you know, like one person, you and I, I mean, we can only learn things that our soul is driven to, Right. But there's so many other tools that are great. Uh, that's, I think, one of the most important powers of what we do. We value a whole array of things. Even if our reach and our cognitive scope can only grasp this, we're open enough to say, yeah, but we're not going to say that that doesn't work. I mean, we've seen enough things to say everything seems to work. It's more important. Sequence. Yeah, the sequence and also like what a how did you how do you know how to apply particular resources to a given patients and so the trick is sequence and also knowing what particular individual is more likely to benefit from and not worrying about okay well i know ayurveda works great but i don't have an ayurvedic provider in my practice because you know whatever the reason is don't don't worry about that use what 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 you have in your camp 
and and use it in a way that particular patient is most likely to benefit from. So, and that's also, I think, why we have a lot more agreement than disagreement. Like if you look at the typical Western model, I mean, squabble between specialists, it's just like, oh my God, like I'm dealing with this at the university level day in, day out. And there's more squabble than there's alignment on many situations. And I'm like, I don't want to work like that. You know, we know that the integration of different modalities, modalities and whether they're Western or, or not, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, the whole point should be the integration of thought processes and, and expertise. So, you know, but um, but I have a feeling that if the country, this is a more my political point, if the country don't invest into long COVID now, it's going to be a huge problem. It's going to be a huge problem. I mean, it's like this this looming elephant in the room and nobody wants to talk about it. It's like, oh, we are just going to keep doing vaccines, which are probably going to contribute positively that was, that was to my next question. overload of chronic inflammatory response. Which is very similar to long COVID. Yeah. Symptoms yeah, exactly. develops into a long COVID sequela. Exactly. I mean, I'm not denying that they have a role for like older, frail people who are at the very high risk of complications Okay, fine. But like giving a 30-year-old a vaccine, which can cause autoimmune state within 10, for 10, 20, 30 years, it, it, it's sort of like you haven't done any research. Like nobody done a research, like especially the, the most important thing is this new vaccine. There is zero research. They have not applied this vaccine to humans. It's only been given to animals. Eight, eight rats. Yeah. And like, we don't even know, like, we can't even know whether it's comparable to the prior one at overall efficacy. It's just all kind of assumptions. Um, you know, massive human experiment. Everybody have to make their decision whether they want to participate and then also decide what, what risk they're willing to take more. Are they willing to take risk of acute COVID? And if you're not willing to take that, get your shot and don't worry about it. But if you say, I'm willing to take the risk of acute COVID. I'm young and strong enough. I'll probably have a mild disease. I don't want to risk long-term consequences. You always can come back to us. Yeah. Uh, that's actually one thing I wanted to bring up before we close. It seems like that if you throw on a basic preventive package at the time of acute My next question, yeah. <laughs> we don't see long COVID after that. Which like, is what? Which well, so it's, a, I mean, a lot of things you mentioned, the quercetin, right? Uh, so, well, fatty acids, I don't think are critical in that moment, but uh, quercetin bromelain, um, NAD or, or nicotinamide riboside, because the mito you don't want to let the mitochondria crush. You have to try to rev it up as much as you can. Some kind of a detox molecule, so whether it's glutathione or NAC, the NAC is very important if, if, if someone has a lot of uh, chest symptoms, uh, cough, Productive or non-productive doesn't matter if there's a lot of like congestion overall. So the NAC becomes really important. And I sometimes push NAC to crazy doses. I could push it up to three grams a day. Depends on what the patient has. But usually it's like between one and a half to two grams a day. Uh, zinc, um, melatonin seems to be a pretty good load. It don't have to be a Great high. for mitochondrial health too. Great for mitochondrial health. Great antioxidant. You know, five to 10 milligrams. Don't have to I go think. over 10. You know, three to six is probably in most of what I give. Um, what else I'm thinking? So some kind of stronger anti-inflammatory is the turmeric. If you're, if you're not, uh, if you know person's fatty acid state, that they're poor, okay, great, give them some. But if they're like pretty, like if I have my own patient and I know that they're, I've tested them before and they're in a top course percentile of fatty acid, I won't give them more. Why, why, what's the deal? What's the connection between turmeric and fatty acids? I'm unfamiliar with this. No, it's just they're all anti-inflammatories. So, like, I'm just in that context. So, so, just just trying to throw in a lot of anti-inflammatories. I would use Paxlovid on some patients, but only on the patients when I know that they're at risk of the viremia continuing. I'm not going to use it on young patients. I don't. I mean, they'll clear it up, no problem whatsoever. Um, what else am I forgetting? Um, I mean, I think, I think it's very useful. The, um, ivermectin versus, uh, so, 
Yeah, I mean, I the chloroquine I don't like. It's in the mitochondrial suppressant. I don't like using it even acutely. I, I would use it if patient has a, some kind of an existing autoimmune condition, and I know I need a very heavy guns to suppress inflammatory response. Beyond that, I for like a, even a healthy older person, I wouldn't use it just because I would worry about um, mitochondrial damage from chlor- chloroquine. Ivermectin, I don't have a lot of experience, but but I think it's a lot safer overall, and and the doses can be a lot higher. Um, Again, I kind of look at this more from a personal perspective. So if the patient tells me, yeah, I would like that, I have no problem. I just prescribe it. Like, I don't argue over it. Uh, Definitely vitamin D, even if they're normal, like, because they're going to overuse the D rapidly. So you can give them probably as much as 50,000 units a day for a couple of days for maybe five to 10 days. During the infection. During the infection, but at least 5,000 units, if not 10,000 units per day. Uh, C, and I don't necessarily care what C they're going to get, but you want to at least a couple of grams a day, probably between three to five, depending on what gut can tolerate. If gut cannot tolerate a lot, can do subcutaneous, I mean, sub, sublingual. Um, when I had COVID, I gave my own myself intravenous just because I felt like I didn't want to, like, my gut is sensitive, so I don't like to take too much C. I get diarrhea very quickly. Um, you know, and then you can, and you know, there's a whole slew of other things like EGCG as anti-inflammatory. I mentioned bromelain with quercetin, but sometimes I add Boswellia too, and I like this product BCQ, which is a kind of combination of all three. Um, you know, so I think that was pretty much more or less the top choice, um, you know, and, and ivermectin, if you're using, I think it needs to be way higher, probably 0.6 per kilogram. Yeah, I agree. Right. So, you know, if you're using it, uh, but I also like some of the European, uh, um, drugs that we don't have. So I do use the European products that are interferon boosters in patients who am I worried about. So like a Kagacel is what I use from the, from the, it's, it's a, it's a actually a Russian drug that's approved by there. Uh, and it's very heavily available in Europe. There are a couple other interferon boosters. We don't have them. Okay. They're not available in us. So I just import them for, for patients who I'm particularly worried. And, and that's a, they general antivirals. Like I use them a lot for, for EBV. I use them for varicella, for like a chronic varicella a lot. They were seem to be very effective because an interferon crashes quickly. And we know that that's, and I don't, I'm not aware of any US based treatment protocols for that. Um, you know, and the dosing there, it depends on the individual. I'm not going to go there because it also depends on um, kind of the severity of illness. So sometimes I'd give more than average. So, okay. You know, and then if they can afford anything else, you know, intravenous vitamin C would be super, uh, NAD plus IV would be amazing. It's expensive and a long-term treatment, but if they can get and come and get it, that would be really useful. Acupuncture acutely would be very useful. So all this same methods, you know, that we would use even for the post COVID, but in acute settings, it seems to dramatically decrease risk of long COVID. You know, but in, in now we know this, but a year ago, year and a half ago, this was all like, I have no idea. We're just trying a bunch of stuff. Is it going to do anything? Yeah, we don't know. They have no idea. Yeah. Well, I'm sure after reviewing this video, I'll have a lot more questions and how I'll be able to outline things more systemically and categorically so that I can actually ask more, um, you know, specific questions and see what your thoughts are. This has been a very helpful conversation. Yeah, and I would like to talk to you, you know, even off record or at later point about stem cells and ketamine therapy and other things that are just, I think they're just so transformative um, and very quickly. And it's obviously it can be expensive, but, you know, these are all things that can be negotiated. Sure, sure. Yeah, so awesome. Well, we're going to look for your book, hopefully sooner rather than later, I think. But I don't think that, this issue is going to go going away. No, I, it's going to get worse. I think it's going to get a lot worse. I, I have a prediction that the f- comes later fall, we're going to have another wave. I, that's my, my thought too. And then long COVID on the other end next year. And yeah. Yeah. Most patients, most patients are not going to get this acute treatment cocktail. They're going to have their 20, whatever percent risk of long COVID. And we are only going to keep on going up. 
But, you know, we here, we're going to do our best to serve those patients. And so, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll have to back, have you back when the book is out. Actually, when the book is out, we'll probably try to get you into GW. Sure. Some point. Yeah. Uh, and I'll hopefully you'll be available for maybe you know a couple more of these interviews. Sure. All right. Well, great. Thanks so much again. This is Dr. Gula, Dr. Kogan's mini cast, what I call it. Um, everybody have a great day.